welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So this is part two of my conversation with philosopher and epistemologist Dr. Carlo Martini discussing the nature of expertise and how we recognise the associated attributes of an expert. So if you haven't listened to the first part of our conversation, go back, take a listen so that this episode makes a bit more sense. So in this episode we speak about the two dimensions of medical communication and we distinguish between scientific misinformation and disinformation. We talk about how we recognise expertise while standing in the shoes of a layperson, and we discuss ways that can help us enhance our recognition of expertise. And finally, we talk about the public perception of expertise, and unsurprisingly, we use the current pandemic as an exemplar. We discuss what to do when experts disagree, as well as the propagation of medical misinformation and in some cases disinformation by those which claim to have expertise. So I hope you enjoy the second part of my conversation with Carlo. It's been great to have him on the show to share his own expertise on the subject of expertise. So once again, I bring you Dr. Carlo Martini. Perhaps now is a good time to move on to the other area of your work, but certainly another area of your interest, this slightly more public perception of expertise, and particularly now in the context, I suppose, of the pandemic and all the stuff that comes along with it, whether it's misinformation, disinformation, um, around all the stuff that's tied to this experience, masks, vaccines, etc. And, and maybe introduce your work you're doing with Perisha, mm-hmm. if I said that right. Yeah, that's right. So Perisha is a project funded by the European Research Council. It's it's based in Dublin. So Maria Bagramian is the PI in Dublin. And um, it's about trust, expertise and knowledge. So how can we trust the trustworthy? Let's say, how can we trust the, the right experts? I'm the, let's say, lead investigator for one of the work packages of the project. And the, uh, we, we work on, um, let's say, using experiments to find the right tools for building trust, in a sense. And we are very much concerned with disinformation. So this is, to a large extent, the focus of the project. The, the recent pandemic gave without wanting it the project was already funded before the pandemic hit but it it gave a really good case study in a sense all of a sudden well well there's a number of related phenomena right so all of a sudden everyone sort of became a a social uh, social media expert on uh, on on all the topics you know related to covid and so on but this phenomenon, I don't want to dismiss it, but 
you know, it's it's more of a sociological phenomenon. It doesn't concern me as much. Uh, what really concerns me is the phenomenon where real putative experts, so people who had credentials and titles and big names and positions, they they started spreading disinformation about many aspects of the pandemic. Of course, at the very beginning, there was a related phenomenon, which was some people were spreading this misinformation. So just to clarify for the listeners. Yeah, the distinction would be helpful. We usually refer to misinformation as all kind of inaccurate information. But this includes uh, human error, uh, right? I mean, sometimes our knowledge is very imperfect. And especially the very beginning of the pandemic, for example, there was doubt whether masks were effective because people didn't know about the modes of transmission of the virus to to a large extent. So of course, in the beginning, there was quite a bit of misinformation and, and many experts fell into that trap. For obvious reasons, and I think it's absolutely part of the process of science. But then as our knowledge progressed and little by little, we ruled out some possibilities and we learned that, yes, masks are effective and so on and so forth, then still some putative experts, they started spreading this information. They presented themselves as, oh, I'm a doctor and I'm telling you that this substance is effective. Drink this uh, potion. I mean, it, it is really, if you think about it, it's such an old phenomenon, but it's still so current. I'm thinking in, in the Middle Ages when there were these, um, you know, uh, horse-drawn cards with the the alchemist going around with the potion that cures this and that. And, and some people were, you know, really modern alchemists telling you, cure yourself with this substance or this other substance with no evidence behind it, either other than some maybe personal experience, you know, or, or, or whatever. But that's a little bit different because the scientific truths that we had mm-hmm. 300 years ago were based on the kind of knowledge from the community. So it may well have been plausible to drink a potion from the back of a wagon. We didn't have the knowledge that we have now. So I suppose to judge that in hindsight, whereas I think what you're saying now, it's, a, it's different that we have, that the disinformation which is being put forward is incompatible with the current understanding or knowledge around a certain thing. Exactly. Yes. So the the important point here is, and, and to actually conclude the thought about misinformation and disinformation, is that in this in this other phase, we go from misinformation, which includes scientific error and so on, to disinformation, which is misinformation with intention. Now, whenever you are in a situation of disinformation, there is some intention behind. So sometimes it's difficult to know the motives, but, you know, the motive could be from economic interest to simple publicity, for example. As you said, however, the the, the stark contrast, contrast with the case of the 
medieval alchemist. I mean, I, I imagine that also back in the day, some some people were into, you know, this information in the sense that they, they had other motives. I mean, they just knew that, you know, this potion doesn't make anyone fall in love with you, but still they, you know, they sold it nevertheless. Of course, medical knowledge was uh, not as advanced as today, but clearly, yes, today there is exactly what you said. There's a big contrast between what the... the not only the the knowledge we have, but also the knowledge about how to get knowledge. So it's it's not only that if, um, you know, I might be in a situation where I don't know whether this substance works, but I know how to know whether it works. You know, once I've tested it in a certain way with certain criteria, then I will have known. But until then, I cannot say that I know whether this substance works or not. And so anyone who claims, I mean, sure, if you're, maybe your patient is going to die, okay, try something. I mean, I know that that's what was going on in many cases at the very beginning. We, we had to do that. And I think it, it was fair. If the outcome is death anyway, well, at some point, just try whatever. But it's not that then you can claim it works. You haven't done the work that's necessary to claim it works in, in general. And even on the single patient, you do not know whether it has worked or not. It could be spurious. It could be maybe that person would have recovered anyway. So this is what we're interested in um, these cases of disinformation. So, so clinicians probably have a good understanding of whom their colleagues are and how to recognize whether a claim that some of their colleague makes is, is good or not. Of course, there might be differences and I'm sure there are disagreements also. Maybe we'll have the chance to talk about disagreement in, in science in a little bit, but an expert has the resources to recognize other experts, usually. Uh, this is not always true for um, lay people, for non-experts. And clearly the public was very confused in many, many situations about whether someone was giving them advice um, as genuine experts or, or not. People were taking advice, unfortunately, from, from bogus experts. And that was, well, I've read some articles that disinformation has directly caused deaths. So people drinking, I don't know, some solvent and, you know, poisoning themselves, trying to purify themselves from, from COVID. I haven't done my own personal investigation into this, but I, I have read articles that directly link disinformation to very serious outcomes like people dying. And, and of course, the indirect outcomes are much bigger and they are also much more prevalent, I think. We can move on to that the disagreement between experts and I suppose the most recent example that I'm aware of, at least in the context of the pandemic, is these booster shots, which are now being given to for vaccines, that there was uncertainty, or certainly not initial consensus amongst, I mean, this is me, this is just my, my own experience of the news and readings for various bits. 
but you had some experts saying boosters weren't necessary, that actually the immunity which the vaccines afford carry on for longer than six months. Others seem to to, to have um, different views and there was even views, differing views nationally, I think. And so that to me seemed like a genuine, honest disagreement among scientists about what the the evidence or lack of evidence was was telling us and maybe contrast that with the the less honest or more dishonest perpetuation of disinformation by equally by experts who would appear to be in equally good standing that these were people that held university positions senior clinical roles right so how do we make sense of that Right. So the case of, I haven't looked at the case of booster shots, but let's imagine that, that there's a genuine disagreement. Well, how do we know that? Most likely because we can look at uh, the sources of various different claims. And by analyzing the sources, and by source I mean, I mean people, literally, or um people or or whatever you know they say or they they write we can analyze these sources and look for and look whether they have an equal standing as as you said as you uh, put it eloquently there are however cases in which the the different uh, sides in in a debate a debate that looks scientific debate that talks about scientific issues are not on equal standing. I should have mentioned that, um, so what we do in, in our project is actually to try, we have a lot of tools from epistemology, uh, social epistemology, psychology, behavioral sciences. We have many tools to try to analyze the what we call, I use a bit of a technical term now, but we call it the epistemic environment. It's I guess it's also kind of intuitive, but it means the the knowledge situation around a certain topic. Okay, so we have many tools to analyze this environment. The problem is that they require quite a deep acquaintance with the methodology of science, the sociology of science, sometimes the history of science. Clearly, these are not topics that most people have. And sometimes even experts don't, you know, even, even let's say a clinician might not know about the methodology of, of science so well or the sociology of science and so on. So what we're trying to do in our project is to try to build little tools, little help tools like some, some cognitive interventions and, and so on to give, give hints to people that they can use to recognize some like like red lights you know like like there's a some, something is a bit odd here maybe this debate is not what it looks like okay maybe there are these two people they both wear the the white coat and they both look expert and maybe, maybe there's something strange going on here okay so we try to um, and we do this in, in experiments, we, we test these interventions, but we try to use these uh, interventions to boost, that's actually a technical term, to boost people's critical thinking skills, okay? So let's take a situation, for example, it was the case for 
hydrochloroxine. Um, did I pronounce it right? I guess so. At the very beginning, of course, there was a lot of uncertainty and we didn't know so much about it. As time progressed, I take it, I, I looked a little bit at the case, that the evidence became, um, it started weighing quite heavily on the side that was claiming that it doesn't really help, hydrochloroxine doesn't help to fight COVID infection. And yet some people kept promoting it and, and trying to claim the, uh, the opposite. And even people, like you said, with credentials and so on. So then we have to start analyzing the sources. Are there conflicts of interest there? These people who are claiming hydrochloroxine works, are they some type of minority position? And, and if we know science and how science works, we know that consensus is important in science. It, it, it is the way it is. Um, you know, in some cases, yes, maybe the, the voice after the choir might be right. But in most cases, we know that science works by, as a community. We build knowledge as a community. So consensus is important and so on. And you can have many ways of analyzing the epistemic environment, let's say, and we can recognize those cases in which the disagreement might not be really scientific. It's a type of disagreement that doesn't happen between people that are on equal epistemic standing. We, we say they, they are not equally epistemic peers. And this could be for a variety, of course, of reasons. Maybe the doctor who is saying uh, hydrochloroxine works is, um, let's say, a surgeon. Maybe they don't really have specific knowledge in, I don't know, virology or, you know, now we, we should analyze the different fields. Uh, but, you know, like, like we were saying in the previous part of our chat, there are degrees of expertise. So... I'm sure that a surgeon would know more about COVID than I do, even though maybe they don't know much about virology, but surely they have done some coursework during their medical degree. But surely if I want to know whether a certain chemical substance cures a certain disease, well, I need more than a surgeon's opinion. I need uh, at the very least a, a randomized control trial or 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 something like that. So just to, to clarify, the credentials or lack of credentials in themselves don't make something to be true or false. So so it's not so much, I guess I'm thinking about the appeal to authority that just because someone holds a bunch of certificates, even in virology, right, even if these, or a bunch of PhDs, and they might still be wrong, but you're, I just, I guess I'm just trying to separate out I mean, the surgeon that's never touched a viral, what a viral test tube of virus in its life might be speaking the truth or might be consistent with the scientific consensus around a particular thing. I suppose my question is, what significance does their background have? Like, who who cares? It's it's the like you said, the the scientific methodologies and methods. That's the grounding as to whether something is tr is true or not. Right. Yes, the grounding, of course, is 
Well, if if we are talking about this type of knowledge, let's say whether a drug works or, or doesn't, and of course that's not the only type of knowledge that we might be looking for, there might be other cases, but uh, then yes, of course it has to do with methodology, how it is applied and, and you know how you have arrived at, at a certain scientific statement, let's say. Of course, this always goes through someone's mouth, in a sense. You know, I mean, I, I think that the point is very trivial, but but I think it's important. All sources are human sources. You know, there is no no randomized control trial that runs by by itself. You know, it it always goes through what I would call an argument, an expert argument. Okay, that's that's very important to keep in mind. So let's imagine that. I have a, a very prominent surgeon who, however, is disconnected from the community of virologists and who says that a certain drug works. Well, I need to ask myself, how does this person know? Maybe they have done their independent testing. Well, but is it likely? I mean, y- you need humongous resources to test something. I mean, in, in our small world, you know, we are doing experiments, um, social experiments we are doing, so we're not testing drugs, but, you know, we're doing these um, social science experiments. And I know how many resources are needed to run one experiment. And, and that's like an infinitesimal part of uh, running an experiment. You know, it's like if, if I tell you, hey, I've tested this physics theory, and I know that the Higgs boson doesn't exist or whatever. Well, what are the chances that I really have done that? You know, the the, the kind of this big science scale is such that it's extremely unlikely I have done any such testing on my own, you know. So in that particular case, I guess the epistemologist and we are trying to bring that a little bit more to to the people in a sense. Of course, it's, it's not always easy. But the epistemology will start thinking, well, what are the chances that this one person has really been able to test whether this drug works or not? And well, they are, they are very low in, in that case. Uh, there might be other cases that similarly disqualify a putative expert's judgment for example, has this person received funding from someone or, or something to say what they say? For example, I take it that this is not, this is not common knowledge that the um, Wakefield, the guy who initially published the paper correlating vaccines, uh, the MMR vaccine and, and autism, uh, later, it was found out he was being funded by the um, advocacy, the, the uh, litigation industry, so the you know lawyers doing litigation. Well, the person was an expert in his own respect. He had a white coat, he had um, a CV and all of that. But when you throw in these financial incentives, then the the judgment of the expert loses its status of an expert judgment. I think I was telling you when we were chatting some time ago that I 
it's okay to talk about experts and non-experts, but I think it's a bit better to talk about expert judgments and non-expert judgments. And what I mean by that is that you should always evaluate the single claim as much as possible and not the person. And I also don't mean that you shouldn't try to evaluate whether someone is an expert or not. Of course, that's important. But what ultimately counts is whether a judgment is truly an expert judgment in the context in which that person utters that judgment. There are many, many cases from climate science, people that had lots of credentials, lots of big CVs and all of that, but they were being paid and funded by the oil industry. So clearly their judgments couldn't be taken, at least not simply like the you know at, at least you need to run some extra checks uh, i'm not saying that if you get financial incentives from somewhere then your your judgment is disqualified i mean that would be ridiculous you know of course the pharmaceutical industry is uh, helping lots of clinicians do the research and so on so i'm not saying that the financial incentives in themselves are disqualified but then you need to do some extra checks you need to think more and you always need to use all these criteria in, in a bundle, you know, I actually have some papers where I, I list criteria. So I, I say you, you need to take these nine criteria and try to judge this claim in relation to these criteria and try to understand how expert that judgment is. Of course, this is very difficult to do for a layperson. So we are from those from, from that complex epistemological machinery, we are trying to extract a little bit simpler tips and, and uh, you know, guidelines for understanding whether a certain disagreement is genuine or bogus. And so, so you imagine that there would be some resources for lay people, the public, to be able to make some judgment themselves or distinctions around the claims that professionals or people on TV or wherever it might be can can make do you, do you imagine there would be an ability to to kind of roll that out on in a large scale and how how would that look like would it be done from school would it be how do we, where do we start with that yeah so whether there are resources accessible to the public um, there are but they are limited uh, John Cook is an Australian expert on disinformation. He focuses on climate science, uh, but he has amazing material together with the collaborators, um, Stephen Lewandowski and, and others. The, the people, especially in the recent, I would say the past two, three, four years or the past decade, people have really taken up this task and tried to uh, make material available um, to people that might not have necessarily an expertise in epistemology and methodology of science and uh, sociology of science and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so there is material, but, but it's not simple material. So what we were doing in our experiments, uh, what we are still doing to some extent with the, my uh, research team is 
to give people an example of a piece of science-related information. And we don't tell them whether it's genuine, genuine scientific or whether it's some disinformation. And we ask them to recognize. And of course, we have done previously a very thorough evaluation of the information contained there. And what we do is to, of course, it's, random, it's randomized, okay, the, the experiments are randomized. So to some people, we give some tips on how they could go about trying to understand whether a certain piece of information is scientific or not. What we observe is that these tips, they are useful, but the usefulness is, is limited. Like there are, there are limits to what you can do. And, you know, these experiments are super fast. They happen in, you know, people take a minute or 30 seconds or very, very short times. And when you do things so quickly, the results you can achieve is important, but it's, it's limited. So there goes the role of education. Uh, I liked it that you, you mentioned education because I think there is a very, very important need for educating about critical thinking, science literacy, online literacy. There are very nice, there's quite nice material about online literacy and how to spot, well, for example, fake news online, you know. I mean, fake news is a bit different from scientific disinformation. It's, uh, uh, it's easier to spot fake news than scientific disinformation. But I think education is important and I think it would be very important to start from I'm not an educator, so I, I wouldn't be able to to tell when to start exactly. But I would imagine as soon as you start explaining science to a child, it's probably also important to start explaining that some things look like science, but they are quite not there. And And I guess you can do this in stages. But certainly, you know, at... I mean, I did quite a bit of science in my high school. We we went quite deep to some extent in, you know, some science matters. And certainly at the high school level, when you when you teach chemistry, when you teach physics and so on, you, you shouldn't just explain the facts and figures, but you should also try to explain a bit about the history, the sociology the methodology, and, and maybe also some courses specifically targeted at uh, scientific disinformation that I think it would be very useful. It, it would create some sort of resilience, possibly some sort of, you know, also kind of working in the background. You know, you, you might acquire some some cognitive tools that then will hopefully work in the background as you go through the, it's called the infosphere, you know, the everything from books to internet to, you know, someone talking to you at the Congress, it's, it's all infosphere. And certainly we need more tools for navigating the infosphere. And most likely the only way to achieve that is through education, not through, you know, little you know, the like a little button on Facebook that you can click and 
learn more about. It's useful, but it's it's not quite enough. Well, hopefully podcasts like this. Hopefully, yes, also, definitely also this kind of educational podcast, yes. Carlo, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.